Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for creative people that want to tell new stories in new ways and have sustainable artistic careers. I'm Jonathan Ball, and I hold a PhD in creative writing, and I'm the author of many books, including poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and comics. I also own a company called Stranger Fiction. Stranger Fiction is a new publisher of unconventional genre fiction, but we also help people learn how to be more creative and have better careers. We also work with companies that need to stand out from the crowd. Uh, And Stranger Fiction, of course, also publishes this podcast. So go to strangerfiction.ca where you can find a ton of free stuff you won't see anywhere else, including the show notes for this episode. Additionally, you know, it's very exciting time for me. I'm excited to tell you about a few great things that have happened recently. My short story book, The Lightning of Possible Storms, won a Manitoba Book Award. Uh, It also was shortlisted for the Relit Award. And so this is the perfect time to read it if you haven't already. Salima Nawaz says it is cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. And Suzette Mayer says it confirms me as one of Canada's very best writers. You know, so you know, I didn't say it, Suzette did. And let me tell you, those are two of the coolest people in the world. So you don't need to know anything else. Uh, get the Lighting of Possible Storms wherever you get books. I suggest McNally Robinson, which is my local independent bookstore, but wherever you want to get books is fine with me. Just ask them for the Lightning of Possible Storms. And while you're at it, I'm putting out my very first comic book with artist GMB Kamichik and letterer Lyndon Redchenka, and it is being published by Heavy Metal. And I'm so excited about this. It's a real dream come true for me because the very first comic that I ever bought with my own money was an issue of Heavy Metal. I got off the bus station, a bus at Winnipeg uh, after leaving home for the first real time, like moving out. I bought an issue of Heavy Metal with, uh, you know, half the money I had in the world. Uh, And now I'm being published by Heavy Metal. So that has been a real, uh, you know, (laughs) it's taken a while. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited about it. The book is called The Eye Collector. Uh, It is a surreal horror based very, 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 very loosely on the E.T. Hoffman uh, story, The Sandman, which is the story that Sigmund Freud uh, used to develop his theory of the uncanny. So we depart from that very far, uh, but it's called The Eye Collector. It begins as a five-issue miniseries, uh, and the very first issue is out now. So go to Comixology, go to Heaven Metal's website, you know, go to your local comic book store and tell them that you want The Eye Collector. Uh, but the absolute most exciting thing I'm about to do, I've got to say, is start this episode. So let's get going. I'm talking to Zach Schuster, and uh, he's the author and illustrator, creator of Thread. Uh, Zach, can you tell us a little bit about what Thread is and sort of how you come to making comics? Thread is a collection of short uh, Norse mythology-inspired stories. I've always loved Norse mythology and comics, and I uh, wanted to make a project that I could post onto social media. So that's the square format. It's in a weird size, if you can see the book, uh, five by five. Uh, and Instagram posts really well when you do a square image. So I wanted to do something that I could bolster my social media presence on and actually just get myself drawing and working and just putting little stories. They're really, really short, five to 10 page stories. And so I could do a full story and get that full feeling of accomplishment every time I finished a single little kind of bit of it, which helped me, it helped motivate me to get the whole thing out, which is fun. 
Um, you were originally posting them on Instagram and in sequences? In black and white, yeah. And like it's in, all, in, uh, pulled out of order. Galleries? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. in black and white? Okay. You can post 10 images, I think, uh, on Instagram as a max. And so that's what I did uh, a 10 pager, then a 5, then a 5, then a 10, then a 5. And I was hoping that would give the book some sort of rhythm. But um, yeah, it was a good challenge to kind of restrict the format size-wise and page count-wise, really make sure I was telling a full little story every time. And you can talk a bit more about what the story is and sort of who Thread is and sort of how that, when you say a, a, you know, Norse mythology-inspired story, what, what do you, can you describe that a little bit? I wasn't feeling too confident on my own as a writer when I went into this, so I wanted to de- deal with something that had a nice, rich background and lots of uh, things that I could change or add or, but also draw from. Um, Norse mythology is meant to be told and retold, and it's something I felt very comfortable in. To, just kind of experiment. So Thread is kind of a mini Thor type running around with a hammer, smashing bad guys and getting into mischief. And uh, I was going for the Link and Navy kind of vibe from uh, Legend of Zelda. Uh, it's such a good duo. It's not just Link and Navy. It's Hellboy and the Corpse. And you have like Agatha and uh, Norgal from Headlopper. Just the silent, stoic kind of hero and the chatty partner. It's just such a tried and true character yeah. combination it's it's it is uh it's funny that you, you list all those influences because my friend uh gmp kamichi got me on who, who has a illustration in your book he here he, yeah. he does uh provides sort of a last illustration where you have the guest artists you know drawing thread and other characters um yeah. in thread's world so he, he got me turned on to head lopper not too long ago nice. i had kind of slept on it originally and then um, uh, you know, I've been a massive Zelda fan from back in the day. Of course. And um, and as you point out, you know, you really ha- Thread is sort of this um, Thor-like uh, f- female character. She actually has some of Thor's uh, magical items uh, yep. in the story as well. Is this very kind of interesting, kind of powerful, kind of mythic sort of figure? But you created Thread, correct? Like it's not you didn't you weren't referencing a specific mythology. Uh, well, Thrud is the name of Thor's daughter in mythology. Oh, okay. And also a Valkyrie. It might be the same person. She's sure. not in my comic, actually, Thor's daughter, but that kind of Harris to the throne kind of vibe I was going for. Yeah, it certainly has that vibe of being Thor's daughter. It's, That's it's interesting. Kind of, it's a throwaway line, but she's um, the her, her Kvasir, my favorite Norse god, uh, is her sidekick in this. And he even mentions when introducing her, she, she is silent, like the Link thing I was talking about. Yeah. Um, she he introduces I don't know her real name but I call her Thread because she's rocking around with Thor's gear and it fits. Is that part of the reason you had her uh, kind of a, as a mute character? So you say you kind of almost inspired by the Link character, but uh, is there is there any other kind of reason you started pulling that in? I hadn't actually committed to having her all the way mute at the start of the stories, and then I wrote a couple over different points in time. And went okay, well now we're committed. Um, it works and it just very well. Yeah, I mean, the reason I think they do it in video games like Zelda uh, is to insert yourself into the hero's perspective because you're not saying something they're not saying something you wouldn't say they're not saying anything at all. You're just there being a hero and it kind of lets you into the world a little bit more. And then that's what this chatty sidekick is for. They're talking to you then. Uh, and so I just it kept working and I kept doing it. So it's, it's interesting you mentioned the video game influence because the other book that it kind of made me think of a little bit um, was Scott A. Ford's uh Arkland, yes. So it, yeah. it recalled Arkland to me in a little bit, but maybe I couldn't quite pin down why. But I think 
it's sort of the video game vibe of it almost like you don't really have as strong a vibe and thread but i i do sort of see that influence now that you kind I of stated the comparison yeah scott's awesome yeah and it, it's um the other thing i think was i thought was really interesting about this particular story because i never saw any of it in um your original posts like i knew who you were because you had done work with my friend Lyndon. Yeah. um but i you know I don't, I'm not on Instagram doing stuff on Instagram. Yeah, sure. and so That's what I was I, trying. <laughs> and like, so I became aware of Thud first when you did a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lennon's like, hey, you should, you know, tax me the Kickstarter. And it's like, and so I bought, you know, I bought the book. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was really impressed. So I didn't know anything about it until it showed up, you know, in my hands kind of thing. Um, other than I'd seen your other work. So like, you know, I was just sort of, I, I liked your other work. Sure. Uh, and so I, um, I was really interested in your storytelling structure because the specific thing that I find interesting as a kind of writer that I find interesting as a reader also is unusual narrative structures. Hmm. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, can you first off just describe sort of how you're telling the story in a bit more detail and sort of how it loops back and sort of zigzags in that way and and sort of what drew you to that? Um, well, the story, I'm telling it non-sequentially because I was literally making it up as I went along and then blasting on a comic in a couple days and then posting it and not letting myself edit because I find I get bogged down by nitpicking and I just never finish putting a thing out. And so for this, I'm like, if I post it, I'm locked in. That's it. No edits. Let's go. And uh, that was really good for me and scary and fun. Um, the way that popped into my head was um, an English professor I had at ACAD. I went to Alberta College of Art and Design a couple of years ago. And I had a teacher who on the first day, his name was Chris Fry, and he's a creative writer. Hmm. And I walked into that first class going, this guy is nuts. Like he's dead boy society, kind of standing on tables, yelling stuff. And I was going, oh, like I need an English credit. Let's just get this through. And I walked by the end of that class, first class with him, I walked out with a big smile on my face. uh, And he taught me a a weird amount about writing. Um, His assignment, the first one we did that kind of went through the semester was just like, okay, I need a small paragraph from a book bring it in. And that was our homework for the first four weeks. And then on the fifth week, we went, okay, to put those in order, tell me your story. All of us in the class without exception had a fully formed story of four pieces of paragraphs we facetiously picked out going, oh, here we go. Big man teaching me how to write a story. And it turns out, yeah, you can string a narrative out of anything. And that kind of really got me thinking about writing and how I would approach it. And turns out you can just make it up as you go along and it kind of works hopefully you also though of course as you point out in the thread book like she you know the character um the speaking character who's mm-hmm. i is a quasier, uh, quasier. quasier. Yeah. he um he talks a little bit about the actual storytelling structure at one point and he references that it in some ways also is recalling the nordic uh method uh, of sort yes. of uh, you know telling part of a story and then leaving out, you know, the rest, the conclusion, in some instances, leave, leaving out a middle gap and some and skipping forward, you know, this kind of, and then kind of yeah. returning to fill in those gaps or, or, you know, telling different versions of things. It's a storytelling structure that you see in, in North mythology. You see it in, to some degree in the, some indigenous mythologies, mm-hmm. um, but you see like that kind of unusual structuring of like gaps and looping and um, skipping around in, in as you say, non-linear, a yeah. kind of non-linear storytelling. For sure. Um, it's, that's 
partially because we just don't have a lot of that stuff. It was all passed down mm-hmm. verbally until they wrote it down. And what we have written down has inconsistencies and a Christian slant in some ways and just lots of was lost. And like, we know the names of a bunch of minor goddesses and we just, that's it. We don't even know what they were about. Like, or maybe we know what some of them are about, but that's, that's it. Like it's, we've lost so many things, which is what let me think I had lots of room to just kind of go with it. And, and sort of fill uh, in the gaps. In the gaps almost. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. And you also play with the whole, um, uh, the cyclical nature of, you know, kind of the Ragnarok uh, structure. Uh, yeah. One of the things I think is really just kind of curious or interesting to me, and I think something that, you know, uh, is a, a lesson for artists and writers is just your commitment early on to uh, not only deciding to take on a project, but to posting it, like sharing it and having these sort of cutoffs by which, you know, you had decided to share something. I'm curious to know just a bit more about what went into that decision so before all this what were you kind of doing like what's your background as a right like as a comic artist um i'm a pretty recent grad still i graduated 2018 i guess it would have been uh so i was just kind of getting going in terms of i want to start launching a comic career of some sort uh, i'm working part-time at a comic shop in town um another dimension which is a great little shop um, yeah i used to live in calgary and i remember that shop well Nice. Yeah, I'm still, I guess I'm not the new guy anymore as of very recently, but I was the new guy for five years and it's been a really nice place to work and kind of meet local people with similar interests. That's how I found half the guest artists in Thread, of which there were 16. I forgot to brag about that. I'm really, mm-hmm. that's the part I'm most proud of, of the book is uh, there's 16 guest artists and they're all phenomenal. So you yeah. kind of were working on this comic store, you're, you really kind of recently graduated in 2018 yeah. and then you decided uh, at that point where you were kind of deciding to take on a larger project. Yeah, I think by that point, Lyndon and I were kind of picking away at Hero Man, and I was working on a full board game, uh, all the art for a card game called Drinking Quest um, with a friend of mine. Uh, he's at all the cons and stuff. I met him through the con circuit, um, and I, I didn't have time to do a full project, but I had the itch uh, that I need to tell a story itch, and Thread was really nice because I could blast out a story in a day or two and then put it aside while I brewed the next story kind of in the back on the back burner, and then I could uh, get my client work done and then when I had another thread story ready, I could blast it out pretty quick again. So this is an th- example of something I really like to talk about because I call this podcast writing the wrong way. And I kind of yeah. talk about writing the wrong way a lot. And the reason I do that is because I feel like what um, there's this tendency that is writers and artists have to th- look at their situation, uh, either their situation in life or their actual you know, talent or ability. And they look at things that they're doing different from say the people that you know they admire and they sure. think those things are weaknesses but often those things are like this weird strength that they have if they just sort of can drill further into it so what i think is interesting about you taking on this particular project is you know you're a guy who's looking like maybe i don't have time or or like the uh like i'm kind of new at this i don't necessarily have the time or the feel of confidence to take on this massive like you know hmm. five, 200 page project but if you carve it up into the, these tiny little snippets, yeah. and if you don't worry about having a linear front-to-back story, you eventually kind of start to develop one. Like as you people read it, thread, did, yeah. it does start to kind of develop. Like you know, there is an endpoint to that story, and more or less, and it does sort of move towards a climax and so on. Yeah. But I can see very much like some of, in some ways you're sort of taking like the things that maybe would stop somebody from doing anything. Hmm. Uh, like not maybe knowing how to kind of 
do a story of that length or not maybe having like uh or, or like a lot of people just um perfectionist themselves yeah. into a corner where they just would go over things again and again and again because they've got 200 pages and they just keep going over them as yeah. opposed to you know i'm going to do four or five ten in, in it won't bunches. get better unless you actually finish it so i just told myself to finish it yeah, I find it's a, it's a thing that really holds a lot of people up. So what, what compels you to, why did you do that though? Like, why did you actually get it to the point of putting it out there rather than sitting on it? Because so many people will sit on it. Like what yeah, stops um, you from stopping yourself, I guess, is the question. The big thing that got me going on Thread originally um, and what kept me going with that was, A, I wanted to post more to social media because uh, my profile does not, I, I just, I'm having a hard time getting traction on there. It's, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of cool stuff. Uh, but the big thing was I read the first couple volumes of uh, Dragon Ball. And I'm not a big manga guy. But it's it's a really, like before Z and all the space flying around and fighting. And that stuff's fun too. But the original stuff is a little boy going out on an adventure. And it's so clear that the writer was making it up as he went along. And it just kind of added charm and whimsy to the world. And if they wrote himself in the corner, he'd kind of drop something. And just they'd go off somewhere else, find the Dragon Balls over here. It was just a really lighthearted kind of adventure and i liked how I, I could just the biggest vibe was oh he's making this up i could do that and that's what kind of got the, the then with the norse mythology as a backbone i kind of went yeah okay i'm gonna get get on that it's a magic moment when you first find a thing where you see that you and you think you could do that yeah you know what i mean like i remember distinctly when i was in high school there was a moment where i watched the movie clerks which uh, i don't know yeah. if people remember clerks yeah. but at the time um, you know, it was this big kind of indie hit and it was the first movie where I watched it and then I stopped it and rewound it and watched it again. And I had the distinct, cause, because I, I felt instantly like, Oh, I could have made that movie. Yeah. Like I actually just from a, maybe I didn't have necessarily, uh, you know, the wherewithal to do it like, or, or the guts to do it, <laughs> like sure. put it on my credit card, like Kevin Smith did. <laughs> but you know, I did have, I could see like, I had all those things were available sure. to me. Like yeah. other than, you know, I, I could have got the video cut recorder. I could have got, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was very, and it was good, but it wasn't so good that it seemed impossible. Yeah. You know, like if I read Carmack McCarthy, it's, I don't feel inspired, you know, but if yeah. I read, but you know, there, there's like that weird, interesting level where if you just hit the right sort of level where it's exciting and fun and, but you also think you could do it. It's yeah. an interesting moment, eh? What, why, why comics, though? Like, what actually kind of got... What was your moment like that for comics, specifically, rather than something for else? For comics, would have been... I liked superhero cartoons growing up. And uh, I was just... I'm pretty young. I'm 25 now. I was just young enough to catch Teen Titans when it was airing. Um, and I liked Robin a whole bunch. And I saw a comic, a ratty trade paperback at my library, uh, the JLA special, A World Without Grownups, when Young Justice is formed. And so that ratty old trade is like my prized possession because I, re I read that and looked at it and went this is great i could do this and i started from then on i started drawing a lot um i had always liked drawing as a kid but that's kind of what went oh i could draw like this not a, no offense to todd knock or ramos whoever that was but <laughs> i saw that went oh yeah this is attainable and then since then i've kind of always loved comics and then got way into it working a comic shop all that uh but that was the book that went yep i can do this and i want to and now you took to Kickstarter to fund this book. So uh, you had already had you you'd already drawn all of it or most of it at that's this the point. I think I had drawn all of it by then. Yeah. 
but in black and white you hadn't colored it yet uh, or? i had colored a large chunk of it by that oh, okay so what made you think of kickstarter and and how did you prepare to do that I printed a little, I went to Europe after graduating and did a sketchbook, a travel sketchbook that I printed myself and sold at small shows and cons and stuff. And I still, I don't think, I'm, I don't think I've broken even on that yet. And so for this one, I went, okay, if I start on Kickstarter, I want to have a thing that's easy to fund because it's already done. People trust for a first time that I'll have it delivered. And then in the future, that sets me up for maybe having a bit more breathing room to do a project and have money for it. Uh, so, but just as a first attempt at Kickstarter, I knew I wanted it mostly done before I launched it. Uh, but I wanted to make my print run back before I sold it because it's so hard to make money in comics. Um, as of now, I'd, I've almost broken even on Thread. Um, even after the three grand, I, I said I needed a grand to fund it, which was a lie. Um, so all said and done, I printed more copies than I was going to, but I'm just about to break even. Um, that being said, that's not including hundreds of hours of drawing it and writing it. and Yeah, not counting it. your time. But so um, it's that's a impressive. rough market for now, but it's a good start. I think um, next time I make a Kickstarter, I can probably do it a little more in advance and actually have some money to pay for um, the next project I work on. You had initially set the Kickstarter goal around a thousand, if I recall, and but then you sh you overshot it to about three thousand and change. Yeah, I could have printed it all and shipped it for about twelve hundred if I just printed a hundred books, and then I sure. figured if I got close to a hundred people who wanted it, then I need more than hundred books, and then my price for it gets better, so I might as well shoot over that. And it, it's a numbers game at that point to figure out exactly how many I want to be stuck with in a year with no comic expos. I'm sitting on another almost two hundred books, um, which isn't a lot for some people. But again, as someone who's just kind of starting out on the con circuit for myself and getting my own tables now, finally, instead of sharing and it's, I don't want to be stuck with too, too many, but I also wanted enough to make the price break worth it. And I've got a great local guy. I'd like to shout out. Um, Sam at Supreme Printing Limited has done my last, the sketchbook I talked about and thread, and he did an exceptional job really quick. While you're shouting things out, why don't you shout out where actually people can find this book? Like, yeah. Uh, if they want to get a hold of thread, because as you say, you, you, you printed more than you needed for the Kickstarter, so you have yes. copies to sell. Um, I'll be selling it in Another Dimension Comics, where I work there in Calgary, and I might reach out to other shops. But uh, for now, I do also have a big cartel store that I'm just getting going, uh, zmschuster.bigcartel.com. It's also on my website, zmschuster.com, links all over to that, so they're, they're tied in. It's easy to get to if you can get to my site. Um, yeah, those are for now where I'm getting to. Can you walk me a little bit through how you would come up with an, an idea for a, a thread story? Well, well, let's just maybe start with the character design a little bit. So as you mentioned, a few different characters you were kind of basing things on. At one point, you talked about Hellboy at one point, And at one point I, in your sketches, I noticed um, you had like some examples of early sketches. Then you have like a note beside one like this glove is, looks too much like Hellboy's glove. <laughs> you know, you've got like, yeah. it's, it's, you see some of the process in there, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the process of designing that character. Um, and then also like a little bit about the process of putting her in a situation, like how you would kind of come up with a situation to put her in. Yeah. Um, the first couple sketches actually came out in my book. If you end up getting it, those first couple sketches that are in there are literally the first couple sketches. She came out pretty fully formed. Um, I came up with the whole kind of story about a girl with, I wanted the gear of Thor outside of Mjolnir. I wanted the gloves and the belt that he's famous for too. To, I was originally going to not have the hammer at all, uh, but it was too cool. I had to put it in. But I, my core idea was a girl in Norse mythology where Thor is supposed to be a redhead. I wanted a redheaded descendant of Thor, which she originally was going to be a descendant uh, with his gear, kind of collecting his gear in a post-apocalyptic kind of after Ragnarok world 
she, uh, if there was less magic items, then even his gloves and belt would be pretty hardcore. And so that first drawing I put out onto paper was fairly much like pretty much what she ended up looking like. But that was the original idea was just she has his gear and she's a descendant and everything sucks and it's post-apocalyptic fun times. And she's going around doing having adventures and so collecting uh, treasure and fighting bosses, kind of Zelda Dragon Ball, just sure that kind of idea. So when you actually were to sit coming, you know, to sit down to do your well, well, when you decide to start posting it, how do you decide on like what kind of schedule you wanted and like uh, how much time you're going to give yourself? Because a lot of times, what I'll say with people do with this sort of thing is like I'm very much a believer in quantity begetting quality and how you really need to focus initially on quantity first yeah, that's right uh, and then I definitely agree yeah and i not to you know i believe i'm a firm believer in quality but i, I think like people stop themselves from say putting stuff out and, like i was just telling my daughter this the other day she was asking about mm-hmm. writing and i was like the best thing you could do as a writer is get a blog and just post to it every week yeah. and get used to one nobody reading your work <laughs> oh, yeah. and two um doing it anyway yeah, you know, and um, but then we really what comes out in the wash of it all is the practice hours, right? And you know, getting that kind of work in, like when you're on that kind of a schedule, you have to just find a kind of way to generate ideas. So, what were some of your tricks that you would use to kind of come up with ideas for to for thread? I kind of I read first of all Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology and any other Norse mythology books and retellings I could get my hands on. Uh, I read some of the prose edda and the poetic edda, but it was a bit dry. Um, the poems that are in the book thread are from a retelling by J.C. Jones in 1878, I believe. It's a 12-chapter book retelling the Norse myths in all rhyming meter, and it's awesome. And so I put little excerpts in there because it's public domain now. Um, but I just I read a bunch of Norse mythology and kind of wanted to focus on the stuff we didn't hear about. So if I heard like a name that didn't have much of a backstory, I kind of put it in a journal and would poke at it or brew it, go for long walks, try to figure out what I could do there. And there's still a bunch of ideas that have now kind of turned into a volume two, just because I never ended up getting these little bits. But like I got the name Odd uh, as the giant she fights. Odd, I think, means greed. And he's a giant and he's a descendant of someone. And that's kind of it. Like that's kind of all we got. And I went, perfect. I need a giant. She's going to hit him. It's going to be cool. Is he have a relation in a different spelling to Odd and the Frost Giants, like the Neil Gaiman book? I remember that. Uh... I don't I remember what he's basing that on, but Neil Gaiman has another book, a short book called Odd and the Frost Giants. I believe it is an original fiction that he may or may not. I think he's basing it's on not on my radar somehow. And I should check it, it out. out. So it was one of my daughter is my daughter's favorite book when she was in grade like five or six. <laughs> and, but uh, it is a great little book. It's it's very small and you know I, I don't well, know. That sounds uh, perfectly how, up my alley. But yeah, yeah, it's called Odd and the Frost Giants, but they spell Odd O D D. Um, okay. Uh, and if you're kind of trying to search for it. Um, but so I think that's a really interesting tactic to actually go find, you know, the things that we don't know as well. Uh, even just the, as you're saying with the character design, you were kind of focusing more on the gloves than say the hammer. Yeah. She, she doesn't get the hammer for some time. It, it's a very cool kind of approach because I think um, on one hand, it allows you to have enough of a framing context that you can skip around and jump around very fast and not yeah. necessarily and, and but still rely on the idea that like people know what ragnarok is basically yeah like if somebody's reading this they probably have at least some vague idea what ragnarok is yeah. you don't have to over explain it you can just kind of mention it and then you know it's supposed yeah. to be ragnarok and then skip ahead exactly um 
yeah, it's very curious. It's, it's, it's a very clever technique. And then at the same time, because you're not, you know, relying on characters that people do know a lot about, like they know a little bit about the world and the mythology maybe, but they don't know yeah. much about these people. Maybe nobody knows anything about these and people. And I might have very well gotten some stuff wrong, and I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, wrong about yeah. these stories. Again, because what we have might be fault, like faulty retellings from years or the slant, again, from religion coming in, other religions coming in there. But overall, I, I, I didn't care that much if I ended up getting something wrong. Now you say you're doing some work on Thread Volume 2 uh, right now, or you have done a little bit? Yeah, I've got a nice uh, kind of script, not like full script, but chapter break that I'm quite happy with. It's nice and cohesive and orderly and actually has an ending worked out in advance this time. I- I'm really happy with it. It'll be another thing for me to experiment on. I feel like that's the next step for me is to practice, is telling a more linear story in the same universe. Are you going to planning to use the same sort of narrative structure, but just kind of in a more controlled or planned fashion, or are you going to break from that structure? There's definitely more of a classic mythology journey. Um, the main character will be her son, Bragi, um, who's also, that name is taken from an, another Norse character, but um, mm-hmm. the god of poetry. But I want to do more where Thread would solve something with a punch. He's going to try to trick his way through it, kind of more classically inspired. Uh, and then as chapter breaks, there'll be retellings of stories we didn't hear from Thrud and future stories, past stories, uh, as kind of like a chapter break thing. So it'll have some of that flavor of making it up as I go along in between the beats of the main story. But it is more of a cohesive hero's journey type story. I know you also do like work as an illustrator you know, for other writers, yeah, as opposed to just kind of writing and illustrating your own work. When you're doing that, you know, ha- when you're working with a writer, I guess, you know, as an illustrator, uh, what is the sort of difference between how you like approach storytelling when you're doing a collaboration or even just how do you, when you are just doing work for hire? Yeah. Like what's the sort of way you treat those scenarios differently? Uh, it depends on the person, uh, because someone like Lyndon, who we both know, is my writer on a project I'm working on called Hero Man. Um, we did, I did a couple pages of that in his anthology uh, with him, and now we're working on more of it. Um, Lyndon's very good at backing off and letting me change things, and we'll talk and see what we both feel strongly about and what should stick and what we can you know, have wiggle room on. Uh, again, it comes down to kind of money. If I'm getting paid lots of money by a client, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, let's go. I like money, hail capitalism. But um, when it's more of a collaboration, I, I like having that back and forth, the discourse that Linda and I can have about what scenes we feel are really important to get a book going. And then the final product is kind of the best of both of our visions. And I, I like that process more, but I also like money. So both work. <laughs> and what do you find um, is the mistakes that people make when they try to find an artist? I've been Like when people approach you. Yeah, I, I entered that, there's a subreddit, Comic Book Collabs, that I've been slowly weaning off of, because originally I thought it was a good place for a community to come, but it's mostly turned into people begging for free art for their precious vision baby, um, <laughs> and that's bad, that's not how you collaborate. Uh, I find that a lot of comic artists have ideas as well, so as a writer you need to add a lot in order to get them on board, especially for, if you're trying for free. Um, you both have to well, be excited about the project. So, the other thing I always caution people when they are, you know, out there begging for free art for their vision babies. I love that phrase. But, <laughs> but no, that's great. But but the thing that those people don't realize, uh, and they should realize, is if they are, is that they they want to pay because and they want a contract saying they paid. Yeah. 
Mm. Because what happens, well, a lot of people don't realize this, but like if they, you know, if you decide to go free art somebody, all of a sudden you own half of their project. Yeah. And they may not realize that. It happened most famously, of course, with The Walking Dead. Yes. Um, you know, not everything's The Walking Dead, but uh, it can get very messy to, and it's, it costs you a lot sometimes to not pay somebody. Yeah. Um, but honestly, just at this stage in my career, at least, I'm just starting out and I need to make a lot of stuff to get better. Uh, I think my friend said, my friend Riley always said a thousand pages until you get good. And I haven't done that yet. So I want to make a thousand pages and get a lot better. Um, and I There's think I'm at the point now where, it, yeah, you just got to kind of blast it out. It can't be precious. You have to just stick to something and make it and move on to the next thing. And that next thing will be better, I hope. What are some of the challenges that you're finding now that the cons have disappeared all of a sudden, like uh, the way that they have? Because I know a lot of people are in this kind of boat that, uh, you know, I certainly am feeling like I'm in a little bit, though less so maybe than somebody like, you know, my friend Gregory. He's in a different boat uh, with the cons. But, you know, whereas like I was trying to sort of move into establishing a kind of career in comics after kind of already having a bit of a career established elsewhere. Gregory, you know, has got a very kind of solid career in comics established. Yeah. Um, and But there's a lot of people who are kind of, so, you know, he's facing a lot of challenges, like, uh, but, you know, he is established. Uh, and so it's a little bit of a different scenario. You're in kind of that position almost sort of between the poles where like you have much more experience than I do in the comics scenario scene. But, you know, you're not certainly as well established as, say, Gregory might be. Uh, you, you're right in that position, I think, where you're not in starting from scratch at all. And you've got, you know, th you, the Kickstarter, for example, was a great uh, solution in some respects to the con problem. Yeah. Uh, but what are the other challenges you're sort of seeing with the cons disappearing? And how are you kind of trying to uh, get around that? Uh, I think for me, the big thing about cons is I haven't made a lot of money at them yet. Um, but they've been invaluable for networking. Like Linda and I came up with our hero man idea while just chatting at a con behind his table. Uh, the people who taught me how to run a Kickstarter, uh, Peter Tchaikovsky, he's a webcomic guy who used to be from Toronto. Um, uh, Jason Anarchy, who does the Drinking Quest games. Like It's just a really invaluable networking tool. Just even if you're not making money, get a table, sell your crap, uh, talk to people, talk to the people beside you. Um, the networking is the biggest thing for me for cons until they start being money pinatas. Uh, which I've heard about. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that point yet. But for me, in a year without networking, that's a whole lot of missed opportunities and projects that aren't going to happen. And I think that's the same. Well, there's certainly not money pinatas now for anyone. No. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I kidding. still owed money now from the cons. So I'd put in for, you know, tables. And I think a lot of people are in this weird scenario too, where they put in money for cons yeah. and they they're not only are they not able to recoup that money, but they don't even necessarily want it back because, you know, sometimes they're not being offered it back and other times, yeah. you know, it could easily become more expensive all of a sudden if the cons do come back, you know, because they're going to be in yeah. potentially higher demand or potentially, you know, it's just a lot of question marks. And uh, I think the Kickstarter is an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon uh, to see how it's worked for people. Uh, and it doesn't always work for people. Uh, and so when you were kind of moving again, as you're saying, you got, you know, a bunch of advice going into the Kickstarter, what were some of the things that people were telling you and things that you found to be, uh, useful going into a Kickstarter? And what were some of the things that you 
maybe saw were challenging? Yeah, um, the big thing for me was keeping it a realistic and attainable goal. Um, I went through and looked at every comic project that was listed on Kickstarter uh, in the weeks leading up to my campaign, which was a lot. And I checked out all the artists and writers and everybody involved, all their social medias to see their follower counts, uh, which is way too much work because I could have looked at three of them. It out. Um, almost everything on Kickstarter, uh, comic related, hits a grand, no matter what their goal is, no, with a couple notable exceptions that look like terrifying uh, nonsense. But um, almost everything is hitting a grand. And I went, okay, that'll be my goal. Because then it'll just, like, it'll actually get funded and I can worry about the rest later. Even if I have to pay some out of pocket, that's better than my last book I did all on my own, um, was my line of thought. And so I kept it attainable and uh, didn't expect too much. And I I was pleasantly surprised with how it ended up going. But yeah, just you want to make sure you're not losing out on money. And as a writer paying an artist, that would be even tougher. For me, who had all the work done and everything kind of ready to go, it was easy for me to just shoot at a low goal and hope for the support. And I think that'll lead to a better next Kickstarter and it'll keep building from there. You just, people only want to back stuff that they think they're going to actually end up getting. So you want to make sure it looks nice and credible. I mean, and is nice and credible, uh, which is tough when you're starting out, I think. And were there things that surprised you about the Kickstarter in terms of, you know, in any sort of way or something you didn't expect? Um, no, all the advice I got was pretty bang on. The first couple of days are the most important. Um, then it hits a slow point, And then the last couple of days are pretty good again. Uh, the third week, uh, you're supposed to do about a month. And there's certain days you should start on. They tell you all in their Kickstarter. When you're about to set it up, they tell you the best days and times and stuff. But um, yeah, that was pretty true. The third week was like no backers. That's fine. Um, that's true on $20,000 campaigns. And that's true on smaller ones, it looks like. so. It was all pretty much what I expected. I'm just pleasantly surprised that uh, so many people I didn't know backed it as opposed to just friends and family. That was that was nice and encouraging. And how did you start um, s- spreading the word about it? Like other than like initially starting with friends and family, uh, was there any sort of thing you did in particular that you felt really helped you gain some traction? Yeah, I got a lot of support from the comic shop where I've worked. I put up posters there. Um, and I did social media and I talked to some friends, uh, an art dealer pal of mine and some uh, Peter and Jason, like I mentioned, uh, just other people with networks and Kickstarter stuff and asked them if they'd want to share the stuff around. So just, again, using the contacts I made from cons and my work kind of helped me get that initial push. What um, do you think you're going to go after Thread Volume 2? Or do you see yourself doing more with Thread in that world going forward? Or do you see yourself pivoting to a different sort of project? Or or where do you think you're kind of heading with Thread specifically? Well, I'm really enjoying reading or writing the Volume 2 that I've got going. Um, Thread's got some more ass to kick. Um, some people, I, I had a friend say she was a little disappointed with the ending uh, just because it seems like she kind of settles down. And I was just hoping that it seemed like a nice tranquil kind of pause in the story uh, where she, I didn't want to imply that she's just a housewife now and is, so I do have some more stories to tell there for sure. Um, And I'm looking forward to doing that. But again, I think Thread's small bite-sized nature in telling it uh, will let me fill in the cracks with Thread in between other big projects I do. It'll be a good one to kind of pick away at and maybe I'll have another volume in a year or two. And do you, uh, 
and you see yourself going to Kickstarter again for the third volume two as well, I suppose. Are you going to do the same format, yeah. this nice squarish format? It reminds me of um, CDs and like how they used to do. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I've got a nice, I've got an idea of a trilogy kind of vaguely planned out. Um, two is written out. Three is very barely thought out. But I like the idea of purple, orange, and green kind of stick to the palette, do three books in that square format. Uh, the square format does mean that nobody's going to pick me up and actually publish these because like image wouldn't sell square format books. People, they're kind of a hard one to put on your shelf, I think, sell to the mass audience. But I think it's good for the social media and it's kind of a fun, fun change. Uh, I think I'll be happy with this looking back in a couple of years to have a nice little box set of the thread books and then move on to other projects. Well, and the paper and uh, colors really turn out great. Like you, as you yeah. say, you've got a really great printer that you're working with, and and the, um, it's just got a, a really, it's got a very cool style. Can you talk a bit about? It's something really seems like a weird question, but like, where where'd you get this font from? It's really uh, neat, interesting little font. I've gotten a lot of mixed reviews for the font because um, it is a little bit hard to read at points. Uh, it's from Blambot. And uh, same with the title font. Uh, the title font is uh, Destroy Earth BB, and Vengeful Gods is the interior font. Uh, Blambot is a great site for indie comic stuff. As long as you're printing an indie comic and not getting, like even if you're making money, as long as it's an indie comic and not for a big publisher, you can use some of their fonts without a license. Uh, so it's just a great guy pouring back into the comic community. And I wanted to use exclusively his fonts. The the, di the written text font in the back of the book is one of his two, uh, by night or something. But yeah, there's tons of great fonts for anything comic related. And like I said, he's given back to the community in a big way in that it's all free, which is great because I have no money. <laughs> and when you do, um, you talked a bit about the palette. How do you actually select a palette for a story? Are you working off a um, master sort of palette or are you kind of designing? Like sometimes you're... I don't know if you're really planning them this way, but like sometimes it seems very much like you're planning not quite spreads, but you're sort of having a, like the spreads sort of make sense, you know, uh, yeah, as um, spreads. Like, I don't I know, were you thinking about the book? The whole thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was. Um, I made a rainbow palette, kind of a grid of uh, 10 colors. Like the red I use on one page will be the same as the red in the back of the book. And then that's like left to right, the colors of the rainbow in a certain hue. And then up is white gradient steps of 10% or 25 or something. And then down is steps of black. And so it's this grid of um, the rainbow and that rainbow will be true throughout the whole book. And then I pick, I try to pick two or three colors per issue uh, as main ones. And then the whole book as a result kind of feels nice and cohesive, even though the colors are all over the place. They, uh, they feel nice and uniform because it's the same orange at the start and the back of the book. Uh, I think that really worked out. Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it's it, you know it's, it turned out uh, really really well, and and I thought the story was really you know interesting and f and and as I say, it was just very fun. Like it's a very fun, action packed story that keeps you know kind of hitting you with you know cool little. It makes it like some ni nice little jokes out of the way it keeps cutting off, you know, and uh, cycling back, and, and it does as it kind of progresses, start to cycle in tighter loops a little bit. And then, you know, as does sort of kind of hit a, hit a real climax uh, as well. So it has a, a nice kind of um, thread and development in that sense. 
I definitely appreciate hearing that because that's the that's the part I was least uh, sure about. The the art I was happy with, the writing I was unsure about, and not self confident. So I'm happy to hear people are liking the story. Um, even though I was making it up as I went along, it all seems to have worked out pretty well. Well, what you really did, what I think was very clever, was you found a structure that accommodates making it up as you go along. Yeah. Like other uh, a linear structure doesn't accommodate that. It, unless yeah. you're in certain genres like surrealism, but sure. uh, for the most part, you know that it doesn't. And that nonlinear structure is hard to make work. But if you kind of pull the that pulling the Norse mythology, con, con, I, like I always say, like if you find the right structure that suits the kind of story you're trying to tell, and if you figure out one that kind of fits with your strength and t- you know hides your weaknesses, uh, in this yeah. case, you know your weakness if you know maybe not knowing how to how you were to handle a massive linear story is totally irrelevant (laughs) right and then and now that you kind of have figured it out as as you figured out over the course of it it almost you know i mean even like learning on the fly sort of works for the structure because it as you kind of get more control and as it gets tighter it actually approximates narrative build towards the end of a book yeah, it definitely paid off, but I was not sure it was going to uh, in the first half. That's for sure. Well, it's a fascinating, uh, fun uh, experiment. I really encourage people to pick it up. So can you again, thanks so much for talking to me. And uh, yeah. again, if you could just remind people where they can find this book. Another Dimension Comics in Calgary um, or ZM Schuster, that's S-C-H-U-S-T-E-R, uh, dot bigcartel.com. Um, are the best places to get there for now. Well, thanks again for talking to me. And, yeah, uh, thanks so much thanks for having Thanks for the thread. Have Thank a great you night. for backing it. I appreciate the support.